Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today and you are enjoying this holiday season. It is another beautiful day here in North Carolina, and this episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Jeremy Clevenger Fitness, who we featured on episode 145. If you haven't heard that episode yet, I encourage you to go back and take a listen, especially if you are struggling to get and stay in shape as a busy leader. I have another great show lined up for you today, but before we get started, I just want to remind you that it is Christmas, and I encourage you to consider giving the gift of leadership to the leaders and future leaders on your Christmas list. I've written three leadership books. I have the watch, you have the watch, and all in the same boat. You can get all three books for less than $50 on Amazon or my website, johnsrenny.com. They make the perfect gift to have under the tree or to mail to the leaders in your life. So get your order in today to ensure delivery before Christmas. Also, I wanted to mention that Deep Leadership is now ranked in the top 2% most popular shows out of 3 million podcasts globally, according to Listen Score. Also, we are now in the top 100 management podcasts in the U.S., according to Chartable. So I want to thank each and every one of you for listening in every week and sharing these episodes with your friends. You have helped this podcast grow into a top performing show. So thank you very much. Well, that is it. Today, we're going to be talking about what it takes to lead a business transformation. And my guest is Steve Blue. Steve helps business leaders avoid the failure that comes from complacency. He helps traditional companies reinvent themselves so they don't become the next Kmart or Blockbuster. Now, this was a fascinating conversation that I know will help you to become a better leader. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Steve Blue. Steve is the president and CEO of Miller Ingenuity. He is an internationally recognized business transformation expert, media contributor, five-time author, and dynamic keynote speaker. His expertise lies in transforming company cultures through innovation and investments in workforce growth. Now, I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about the leader's role in business transformation. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on the show, and I'm excited to meet you and to hear, uh, just listen to to you know your experience in this idea of business transformation, business growth, uh, especially post pandemic. And and I know a lot of people have sort of taking a, a breath of relief after the pandemic, but you're saying you're going to help us understand that it's not a time to breathe. We need to make sure we're prepared for the next uh, big change that's going to happen in the workforce. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, the pandemic was awful. 
but it's emblematic, uh, in my view, of uh, another crisis or another disaster. And if you've been in business as long as I have, you know that the next one is around the corner. I don't exactly. Know it is. It you know may be a medical one. It may not be a medical one, but uh, there's another crisis coming. And so if you're sitting back now, breathing a sigh of relief, that's fine. But don't breathe too long. Get your knickers back in and start uh, working on what's what you need to prepare for for the next pandemic. Yeah, I love that. We're going to get into that today in the show. So one of the things just to get started, I, I was looking through your material and I noticed that you grew up in a blue collar family, similar to myself, uh, and you went through night school for 20 years to earn your degrees. And I just wanted to get, you know, just to understand a little bit, what was that experience like and what did you learn through that experience? Well, my mother was a waitress. My father was a truck driver. So I was about as blue collar as blue collar can be. And they couldn't afford to send me to college. So I joined the Navy instead, which is something you'll you'll identify with. Sounds familiar. <laughs> and I spent four years in the Navy. And while I was in the Navy, uh, I took a lot of USAFI courses. I don't know if they still have those or not, but they're basically the United, United States Armed Force Institute. So I built up, you know, as many college credits as I could. And then after I got out of the Navy, I still couldn't afford to uh, uh, pay for college. So I went to night school and never got my uh, undergraduate degree until I was 40. Wow. And then I never got my uh, MBA until I was 52. Nice. So I, I sort of uh, sort of learned it the hard way and, and, and earned it the hard way. And people ask me all the time, John, um, what was different about the classic education? You get out of high school, four years of you know undergraduate, maybe two years of an MBA, as opposed to doing it the hard way, if you will, while you were working. Well, you know, one thing, it takes tenacity. It takes a lot of, uh, of effort. To, you're working all day long, and then you got to go to school at night. But, but most importantly, John, uh, what I learned was, uh, especially in, in graduate school, they tell you how things like are in business, and, and some of them they don't really know what business is really like because they've only spent their careers in academia and i'm not against academia by the way i'm i'm what's called the ceo in residence of one of the universities in in town here so i'm i, I sort of know both sides but i'd sit there and i'd be you know taking these classes and i'd be thinking to myself nah, you know that's not what i see in the real world that's <laughs> not you know what way things are but it was it was a, it was a good molding and melding of a, a classical education and a real workforce experience and so I was able to bring some of the workforce experience into the classroom as I was bringing classroom into the workforce experience. And I, and I just think that made me a more well-rounded uh, manager. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I look for when I'm hiring people is I look for, uh, you know, I ask for people to give me an example of grit. Show, show me where you you persevere through a challenge. And I actually do look for uh, people who have, uh, you know, work with workforce experience who have got their degrees, you know, going to night and, and doing it part time and taking, you know, 10 years to do it. Those are the people I actually want to hire because I know they have the tenacity yeah. to be part of my team and they're not going to be stopped when things get difficult. So I do think it's a valuable uh, experience. And, and I do look for that actually when I'm I'm looking to hire people in my team because I want people who aren't going to quit when things get hard. Well, that's a good so, thing to look for, John, because, you know, life is hard. Yeah, there ain't no getting around it. And uh, the business world is hard, too. And so if people, you know, unfortunately, some of the younger generation wants kind of the easy way out. 
And yeah, you know, when they when they run into adversity or obstacles, it's like, oh, you know, somebody else ought to fix this or I'll give up on this. And the more you can learn at an earlier age that life is difficult and learn how to maneuver your way around obstacles, the better rounded person you'll be. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think that we, especially as young people, need those challenging experiences. So I do look for those people that have had those opportunities yeah. to be challenged. I yeah. hire a lot of veterans for very, very specific reasons. They've had a chance to be pushed and, and they've given given leadership responsibilities at a young age and they've had to overcome adversity, get through boot camp, get to the fleet, get to you know learn their jobs. Uh, it's hard work. And for young people who are 17, 18, 19 years old, I want to see that. You know, where, where have you been pushed? Where have you been challenged? So I think that's excellent. Uh, and that background, I think, is really effective it helps you to be be a more effective leader when you've you've have those personal experiences i was gonna, just going to ask you that having the blue collar background like you have and i know i have a blue collar background as well grew up in in a, in a in a similar family situation how do you think that helped you throughout your career having a blue collar uh mindset work ethic uh experience well because uh i i can identify more with people that are not in the executive suite yeah and in fact, you know, I'm sure you've been through many of psychological assessment experiences, you know, and uh, one of the things that uh, they told me through every uh, experience I ever had was you because you can identify with the lower levels of the organization, you're more uh, effective. Mm. Well, one, because, you know, like I was out in my factory floor today and uh, I'm saying hello to everybody. I know everybody's names, you know, ask them how their kids are, you know, how's your hip, how's your knees going, all that kind of stuff. And they look at me as not somebody who is uh, in the top tier in the executive suite who doesn't understand what their issues are, what their problems are. They know that I I get it. Mm. And uh, that's what I uh, have found because of my blue collar background. I, I mean, I've been there. I've done that. I I I, I worked in factories. I, I, I did I did a mail paper route, you name it, and I've done it. And so when when I'm asking somebody to do something, and my organization, it's not something that I haven't already done. And and people know that. Powerful. Yeah, it's very yeah. powerful. And and I really, you know, and again, I've seen the best leaders that I've ever worked with have got some sort of a blue collar work ethic or have yeah. worked their way up from the shop floor or, yep. you know, worked their way through college. So I think those experiences are good. It helps you to relate to people better. And, and absolutely, yeah. I think that's great. So you you often talk to what I call Rust Belt CEOs, yeah. and uh, what are what's some of the messaging that you give to these uh, these guys that are leading businesses that are in older industries? Yeah. Well, I'll give an example. The, my third book uh, was called uh, American Manufacturing 2.0: What Went Wrong and How to Make It Right. Mm. That wasn't the title that I wanted. Uh, it was a big publishing house, and you know how that goes. Yeah, they tell you what your title is going to be, and then you either take it or you don't. What I wanted to call it was "fat, dumb, and happy CEOs." What went wrong with manufacturing? Yeah, and they didn't like that. Fine, so they won. But anyway, uh, what I was uh, stressing in that book and and in, uh, in other things that I've written is that you know if you're a Rust Belt CEO, especially, it doesn't take a rocket science to look at the uh, growth curve of all your product lines. They're all on the downside. Yeah, and and, and you know. If, if you want to put the math uh, to paper, you know when you're going to go out of business. Mm -hmm. And so what are you waiting for? Why don't you uh, start getting into, and I, my fifth book was all about how a Rust Belt company could become a high tech company as, as I've done. And I said, what you need to do is you need to start, you need to start innovating, developing higher technology products with higher margins 
with fewer competitors and Rust Belt CEOs, they're all going to die. Rust Belt mm -hmm. companies are all going to die. It's just a matter of, uh, of time. And that's what I preach to CEOs all the time is, what are you waiting for? Yeah. Well, who knows? Some of them are waiting for retirement, hoping to God that they get there. Some of them uh, are afraid to tell their boards that maybe things aren't the way they could be or should be or the way the boards think it should be or shareholders. And uh, so that that's my main message is that nobody can live in the Rust Belt forever. It's a matter of time. Yeah. You know, it's similar to my message. I talk about in my books, this idea of running towards the fire. You know, leaders, you're, you're a former Navy guy. We're all trained as firefighters, right? We're yep, trained. You can't call 911 on a submarine or a ship, right? <laughs> so you are 911. So, yeah. so when there's a problem, you run towards it, not away from it. And what I noticed in my 22 years in corporate was uh, that a lot of people in big companies tend to walk away from problems. They see a problem and they don't want it to affect their career. They don't want to get their hands dirty. It's like, well, everything's fine. I'll just leave it alone. I'm not going to mess with it. And yeah. that's like you said, over time, that's when the, the, these these small problems or these small shifts in the industry or these small changes in yep. competition, these are the ones that are going to actually cause a destruction of your company. Same thing, a destruction of a ship if you don't attack them uh, and, and take action on it early on. So it's a different message, but it's the same sort of concept of taking action to make sure you don't become obsolete. Well, it is because ignorance is not bliss. It, it right, just, right. In the business world, ignorance is not bliss. It catches up to you sooner or later. There's, a, there's another aspect to that, John, uh, is um, people generally, and I talked about this and I write about this, people generally don't like conflict. Mm. I don't like it either, right? I don't like it in my family. I don't like it in my business. But conflict, uh, unresolved conflict, unrecognized conflict, and uh, conflict that's not addressed kills businesses. And that's what happens uh, at the, the executive suite. The CEO will say, geez. If I tell the board we need to spend a whole lot of money that could be given in dividends on more R&D to try to get new products and all, well, they're not going to like that. And yeah. then the next thing they're going to say is, well, why do we need to do that? And if I tell them the truth, we're going to be out of business in X number of years, they're they're not going to like that at all. So, so therefore, they never address it. And that that's just what kills businesses. Interesting. One thing you say is that you say conflict is good. You give an example of that, you know, uh, making sure to raise these issues and not being afraid to, you know, uh, bring up the tough, uh, the, the, the yeah. elephant in the room. Right. Yep. And so you right. say conflict is good, but you say competition amongst subordinates is bad. So it's kind of interesting. I love that uh, juxtaposition. So conflict is good. Competition is bad. Maybe explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. You know what? The the competition should be with the outside. Yes. Yeah. Not the inside, yeah. right? Yeah. And and I've worked for people before that uh, pitted their uh, subordinates against each other. Mm. Um, shine in front of the boss. Uh, do something the other guy hasn't done. And oftentimes they would actually purposefully send us off uh, in conflict with one of, the, uh, uh, of our peers, which is dumb. Because yeah. the, the the real bad guys out out there, and um, so I, I'm not a I'm not a fan of that at all. Uh, but I'm also a, a fan of bringing conflict to the surface and addressing it productively. I'll give mm -hmm. an example. I did a keynote speech last year for a major medical device manufacturer. Right? They wanted to be sure they were being proactive. They wanted to be sure that they wouldn't run into the same kind of safety issues and quality issues that some of the other big names 
in the world ran into. And so I did a study of uh, Boeing and the 737 MAX debacle yep. and the NASA Challenger disaster and the Takata airbag uh, problem. Yep. yep. That was every last one of them. Now, there's a lot of things that they did wrong, but every last one of them was there was conflict down to the lower levels that never got raised to the top. Because what happens when people, in, and I'm sure you know this, in organizations communicate above them, they all have their own interests and their own biases. And so the message just gets a little bit altered. So yeah. to take the uh, 737 MAX disaster, the guys at the bottom were saying, this won't work. It, 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 it'll it end up in a disaster. But then when the one up one level up, it was, well, you know, engineering says this could be a problem. And so maybe we ought to watch it. Then when it goes one more level up, it's like, eh, it's not a problem. Engineering will take care of it. And by the time it gets to the top, the question, the rhetorical question I asked was, do you think the guys at the top of Boeing intended and knew that that would be a disaster and kill hundreds of people? Do you think they would have said yes to that? No, they didn't know that. And that's a perfect example of un unresolved conflict that just boils down to the bottom of the organization and destroys businesses. And, and I see that sometimes, you know, again, with, with a couple of decades in corporate, I saw, we used to call it the good news company, that only the good news got up and nobody wanted to give bad news because it, it affected your career. And I think yep. what you're saying is that we got to We've got to get the good in the bad. You've got to, you've got, there, there's going to be some issues that are, that are ugly and we've got to bring them up and we've got to address it. We can't just uh, sweep it underneath the carpet. Otherwise you end up in these scenarios, which are disastrous for companies. And I think yeah, that's, and, uh, and there's no coming back from that. And, and, uh, where that has to start, John, is at the top. Mm. The guy or, or the woman at the top has to say, you know what? Not only am I giving you permission to raise conflict in front of me, I'm expecting it and demanding it. And mm. you know, the, the the phrase that I hate the worst, nobody ever says this to me anymore. You've been in meetings where they go, let's take this offline. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean, right? Yeah. That means, you know, we don't want the boss to know there's conflict here. We don't know, want the boss to know there, the, it, it isn't happy land here. And so the boss has to be the one to say, guys, I don't expect happy land. I don't mm -hmm. want happy land. What I want is the truth. And I want honesty. And I want people to resolve. But you can't just send people off and say, fix the conflict. You know, I don't want conflict. So you fix it. You have to teach them. First, you have to learn how to productively deal with conflict as a, as a leader. And then you have to teach all the people who work for you the same exact skill because there's a skill in resolving conflict. You just don't let it fester. Somebody asked me the other day, well, isn't that going to mean people are going to hate each other and be mad? No, not if you do it productively right. and effectively. And that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. So that's it's a, a big point, uh, listeners, if you're hearing this is a really important issue. If you see your company becoming too much of a good news company, you could be in trouble. If yep. no issues are being brought up that are uh, that can create conflict, then you probably have something boiling underneath the surface that, that you need to pay attention to. So yep. ex excellent points. Uh, I really appreciate that. So um, one thing you say is you said that um, certain leadership attitudes, and I imagine um, one of them being, you know, not wanting conflict, but certain leadership attitude, attitudes can be um, a disaster for a company. W what are some of the, those attitudes that we have to watch out for in leadership? Well, you mentioned the biggest one is uh, avoidance of conflict. Mm. The, uh, the second one that I see a lot of time in, in, in leaders is they assume everything is fine mm. in the organization. They want everything to be fine in the organization. And I, I'll give you an example. Every time I've sat back, and I've been a CEO now for 25 years, 
every time I sat back and said, oh, man, I got this CEO thing down right. <laughs> Everything is coasting. I'm zooming, baby. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Every time that's happened to me, there was disaster lurking and it, yes. and it raised this ugly head before too long. Yeah. So now what I do when I start thinking that way, it's not very often when I think that way, I think, okay, what am I missing here? There's something I am missing. So I dig into the organization and I look for it. And eventually I find it. And little problems can be solved pretty easily. When they become big problems, then they're not so easily solved. That's probably the the, the most prevalent thing I see with leaders is they because they don't see evidence of something wrong, they assume nothing's wrong. My point is, don't uh, ever assume nothing is wrong and, and go find it wherever it is. Yeah, interesting you say that because I know I've read about Toyota. They actually do that. When they find themselves being very successful, they get worried. And so they start they they start increasing yep. the amount of in, uh, in investments in, in innovation because they're worried yep. that they get lazy with their success and they get, right. you know, they take the success to uh, for granted. So they force themselves to innovate and uh, take that next step. So, you know, they've had tremendous success, tremendous growth, but they also continue to innovate and continue to come up with new products and and, yeah. and improve quality. And they, they're not without their problems, but they're a great, a great company that does, it's a great example of a company that doesn't rest on their laurels. They're always right. pushing it forward. And one of the things I always say, John, is uh, success begets success until it does not. <laughs> Perfect example of that is NASA. NASA can yeah. do no wrong. One yeah. success after another one, and then all of a sudden, disaster strikes. And and the challenger challenger was like a thirty seven dollar part. Yeah. yeah, everybody knew about. It. Yeah. But because they because they get arrogant and uh, and they and uh, and it's hubris and arrogance at the top, usually at the top, that says you know we're so good we couldn't possibly do anything wrong. And hubris and arrogance in a leader is a killer. Yeah, That's the worst thing you can have. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. This podcast is brought to you by Jeremy Clevenger Fitness. As a high-performing leader, you know that leadership isn't about telling people what to do. It's about leading by example. And for most people, the one area they are lacking when it comes to leading by example is their health and fitness. By improving your health and fitness, every other area of your life improves. But how do you get and stay fit as a busy leader? Well, you do what you've always done. You hire the best person for the job. Now, don't struggle on your own. Put Jeremy Clevenger on your team. Jeremy will work with you to help take your physique, mindset, nutritional habits, and more to the next level with his step-by-step, all-inclusive coaching program. Now, I've worked with Jeremy for the past year, and I'm in the best shape of my life. So if you want to step up your game, reach out to Jeremy at jeremyclevengerfitness.com to find out more and get your initial consultation scheduled with him today. This episode is brought to you by the Fraternity of Excellence. The Fraternity of Excellence is an online and real-world community for men who are looking to improve in all areas of their lives. The men of FOE are working together to become better husbands, fathers, and leaders at work and in their communities. 
They live by a simple philosophy. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, I've been a member for more than three years, and for me, I finally found a brotherhood of men that I was missing from my time in the military. Now, I love being around guys who are dedicated to becoming a better version of themselves. So if you're interested in becoming a man of excellence as well, go to fraternityofexcellence.com or you can reach out directly to me to learn more. I mean, I'm facing it right now. I have a, a brand new product that we're having a, a supplier make for us. And uh, we got the prototypes in and they were to an old revision to a drawing. And, and we've, we've been so good at this. We just assumed it would be fine. And then we realized there was an operational problem in, in how we got drawings back and forth with the vendor. And, uh, you know, we we sat there and looked at each other like we we screwed up, you know, and and we've been so good. We We were just so used to opening the box and everything being perfect because we've been right. so good at it. But in this case, we got an old revision to a drawing. We got a product that we can't use now. So, uh, and it's going to cost us a lot of money. And, uh, and, and yeah, and it's frustrating because I think, again, we were resting on our successes. We were pretty yeah. good at what we did. And and yeah. so we replicated that and we, we missed a step and there you go. There's, you know, there's, there's thousands of dollars wasted because we sure. we missed a step so and lead times and customer expectations and material costs and all yeah. that stuff yeah. that, that drags along with it oh yeah absolutely the cost is is beyond what we probably calculate so far yeah right yeah. right yeah so let's talk a little bit about this uh, we talked about it when we did the introduction um you know we've been we've been through a lot in the last 3 years as business leaders i mean probably some unprecedented things i would uh, imagine most yeah. most business leaders have never seen anything like this in their careers i know i haven't uh but you say the time is now for us to strengthen our companies and prepare for whatever adversity will come in the future so how do we you know, we're, we're, we're exhausted, right? We've been running this sprint. We've been, you know, trying to figure out how to run our business re businesses remotely. Uh, we've had we've had political changes. We've had inflation. We've had a supply chain crisis. We've had COVID. We've been through a lot, right? So how do we um, how do we not rest, but uh, but start preparing ourselves for the next coming crisis? Well, you know, John, uh, I'm not that smart, but. <laughs> But I, I know a lot of things, not because I'm smart, because I've been around for a long time. I've been in leadership for in manufacturing for almost 45 years. I've been a CEO for 25. I've been to C-suites for, I don't know, 35, something like that. So I've seen a lot. I've seen a bunch of recessions. I've, of course, seen the pandemic. I've seen all the ups and downs. Any business that can have ups and downs in the last 45 years, I've seen it. Yeah. And one of the things, uh, so sort of, you know, the pandemic did surprise me, but things sort of don't surprise me anymore, but it's like, I've been there, done that. I've already seen this movie. But one of the things that I learned a long time ago, I worked for, I'll give you an example, John. I worked for a turnaround once for seven years. It was the hor worst horrible experience of my entire life, but it was the best experience of my yeah. entire life. Yeah. We were in a position, as many turnarounds are, where we had to make a choice between paying the utility bill this week or making payroll. And so you, you, there wasn't any time or any money or any uh, thought uh, given to strategic planning, which I hate. Strategic planning usually means it's going to take a lot of time. It costs you a lot of money. And five years from now, after you put the book on the shelf, you won't even know what you what you did. So that's where I learned to stick to your knitting, make sure that you're making your orders plan every day. And if you make it every every day, you'll make it for this week. And if you make it this week, you'll make it for this month and on and on it goes to the year. 
too many executives and leaders uh, wait and hope until like a quarter is gone or two quarters are gone. And they say, oh, things aren't going. What do I do now? Yeah. And by, by then, it's generally too late. But the thing I learned the best was operationally control your business every minute of every day. Make sure you have the cash flow to fund your operations and make sure you have a strong balance sheet. That's the most important thing, John. If you don't have a strong balance sheet, you better get one. The companies that were my company, not only did we still make money during the pandemic, uh, you know, our, our, when we came out of the pandemic, our balance sheet was stronger than when we went in. Mm. And uh, so how do you build up your balance sheet? Watch your expenses, reduce your expenses where you can, make sure they're only not non-essential expenses aren't, aren't used and uh, continue to build your balance sheet. The guys that went on, uh, under, they had huge debt. They had weak balance sheets and they'd have gone under from something else, John, if it wasn't the pandemic. They, yeah. So, yeah. A, a competitor, you know, a competitor can move in on you. The government can change the regulations and your product is no longer able to be sold. There's a million things that can happen. The, the best way to prevent that is, Get a strong balance sheet and keep it. It's almost like, uh, you know, what were they saying early on in the pandemic that, you know, the people that were less healthy were more at risk, right, from the disease. It's almost like that with a company. Mm. The more unhealthy you are, the more likely you're going to get impacted yep. by uh, uncertainty and, uh, yep. you know, shifts in the market and, you know, pandemics and all these sort of things. So the idea of be be healthy, you know, run, run a healthy business, have a good cash flow, have a good balance sheet, uh, have a, have a plan that you're moving forward with. And like you said, don't, don't wait, uh, you know, watch it every day and yeah. make sure that you don't allow trends that continue month after month, because, you know, I, I'm an older, I, you know, I'm an older executive as well. And I've seen a lot of cycles as well. And the one thing I noticed as the older I get is that the years go by really fast. You know, you start, <laughs> you start in January, like I got this plan, right? And then by, you're like, wait, it's June. How did June get here? You know, right. you've got to move every month. Otherwise you're never going to get to those goals. That's exactly right. And I, uh, one of the things, I'm not a detailed person by nature. I have people who work for me to do that. But but one, I was asked this the, the other day, I look at the orders report every single day. Yeah, it comes yeah. in at five o'clock every night and wherever I am in the world, I look at it. And if that orders report isn't in by 515, John, I'm asking questions. Where the hell is my orders report? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do the same. And uh, I, you know, I, I do, I do, a, you know, obviously I have a cash flow forecast, but I do it. I do it every week. So I, I know my ins and outs every week. I know what to expect every week. Uh, I know yeah. what's coming and going. I know where the order's coming in. I know what the hit rate is. I mean, I just know like Good for you. the pulse of the business. I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the pulse, I guess is the best way to say it. And well, so that you can quickly react when you see something that's not right. One of the reasons you are that way, uh, John, is because you started your own business. This is like real money for you, right? This is oh, like it's real, real money. money. I know. Yes, yeah, you yeah. get in these bigger corporations, and it's not like it's like playing Monopoly. It's yeah. not like real money. They don't act like their their lives are on the line. Your life is on the line if yeah. you're not watching this business very carefully. And that's the way uh, I have been since I uh, worked for that turnaround. It's like my life is on the line, and so uh, I guard it like a. a I guard it with everything I've got. Absolutely, yeah. Cash, cash is king, especially in a startup business as a, is. As, as an entrepreneur. Uh, I, you know, in in corporate, I ran eight different manufacturing businesses in corporate, and it was like you said, it was monopoly money, cash flow. Yeah. I had to do a cash flow report every month, but 
you know, that wasn't important. E- EBITDA oh. was what was what they were really truly measured exactly on. Exactly right. You That's know, exactly right. Orders EBITDA. growth and EBITDA. Are you doing? Are you hitting those objectives? When I became an entrepreneur, EBITDA is nice, but <laughs> yeah, if, I better want, the cash flow better be right. If you <laughs> so, want to sell, EBITDA is nice, and if you want to survive, it's cash flow. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's that's the that's what I've learned as well. Yep. So, so when we when we're talking about business transformation, when we're talking about um, making sure that we don't get lulled into a sense of uh, um, complacency, what's the leader's role in business transformation? It has to start there, mm. because uh, you know you see I, I I can't remember what this fad was called. It was. Uh, Bottom up, top down. I said, I don't know. The, the transformation has to start from the bottom. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I won't use the phrase on, on, a, on your podcast that I'm thinking about. It has to start from absolutely at the top. <laughs> uh, a number of years ago in, in this company, I've done this more than once, <clears throat> I, I felt the company was not innovative enough. Mm. And so a lot of leaders ago, innovate. I want you guys to innovate. Damn it, innovate. And then they walk away and they go, you know, they'll wait for the next quarterly meeting and find out that nothing happened. And then they're surprised. And what I did is I said, okay, we're going to innovate in this company. And so I'm going to bring in an innovation expert and teach every single employee in the place how to innovate. Every single employee, not just the engineers. That's like kind of their job. They're supposed Mm -hmm. to be doing that. Factory workers, office workers, everything. And I brought in, people thought I was crazy. I brought in the guy that uh, was the, used to be the chief creativity officer for the QVC network. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what people say. They go, oh, wow. And, you know, <laughs> when I'm in an audience doing a keynote speech, I say, does anybody ever heard of the keynote of the QVC network? A few guys would raise their hands and all the women <laughs> would raise, because <laughs> it's a shopping network, right? Well, under this guy's tutelage, the, they they were like a couple of hundred million dollars in sales. And when he left, they're three or four billion. Okay, it wasn't all him, but it was a lot him. And so I brought him in and I had him teach every single employee the principles of innovation, starting with the building blocks of brainstorming. How do you brainstorm? How do you do that productively? And I taught every single employee in the place. And then he'd come back every couple of weeks and the, we'd give them assignments and he'd teach them more and get more sophisticated, more sophisticated. Uh, but it was a it was a uh, effort beginning at the top. People knew I was serious about it because I was bringing this guy in every week. And then I started incentivizing our innovation heroes. So what most organizations do, John, you know, because you've been in big organizations, they have all these departments and they're all they've got cross conflict and their purposes are not the same. Their goals are not the same. They fight for resources and all that kind of stuff. So if you, if you want something to be successful as a leader, throw everything you got at it. What do you got? You got incentives, you got compensation, you got promotions, you got hiring practices, you have recognition and reward. And we used to reward our innovation heroes like you wouldn't believe. We'd give them incentives. We'd publish a full-page ad in the newspaper with their pictures in it, commending them for what they had done. And uh, by the time, about two or three years into this effort, it started to stick. People were doing it by themselves. When we started off, we'd say, we want you to solve this problem. We want you to work on this. And then two or three years later, they just started doing it all on their own. And one day, somebody came up to me in the factory and they said, you know, we really love this innovation stuff. We'd do better if we had a dedicated space where we could 
do nothing but that in. And I said, let me make sure I understand this. You want me to take a place in my factory and in my building that actually makes money, and you want me to turn it into a think tank? And and I said, I love the idea. So I spent a half a million <laughs> dollars on a, what we call the, uh, I call it a Google-like campus in a factory, half a million dollars on that space built uh, to be conducive to thought. And, and now people just come in there whenever they want and, and do whatever they want. And I often get asked, what's the return on that? Well, I can tell you, I've had some really big hitters and a million little ones because we're, we're doing process, we're doing product, we're, we're not restricted to the engineering department. And uh, so that's the key is the leader has to be directly involved in the, in the effort. He just can't delegate that. Well, I think what you when you you're setting the tone right for the organization, you're not just it's not just words. It's actually you're following through with actions, uh, resources. Um, right. you're, you're following up on a regular basis. You're rewarding uh, the the people who are stepping forward and living the culture that you want. So you're establishing that this is the way we're doing business. Yep. And uh, I think that's why. You know, I, I often say that leadership matters, and I think that's an example of where, when when you say we need to change, you you then take the action to make the change. You yep. don't just say, yep. "I expect it to be changed, and I'll see you next quarter." Right? That's Which what I do happens. see. I saw a lot of a lot of leaders do that do in that. my corporate life. Is they would just say it was just you know it was words, but it wasn't action. So you have to have your actions match what your your words are. Well, it was. I worked for a guy one time. We'd be in a meeting. Uh, I was a divisional vice president. There'd be six or eight of us in there, everyone trying to blame the other guy for why things weren't yes. working right. Yeah. And he'd sit there and he'd say, okay, so what's your number going to be this month? It could be manufacturing, could be anybody. And he'd say, I don't like that number. He says, you, you leave the meeting and you come back to me when you have a, a better number. I mean, that's, you know, leadership by decree. It's awful. I mean, that's what they do. And then, and then of course, the guy had come back with a better number. And then the yeah. boss would be surprised, and the better number was nothing but a mirage. It, it, yeah, it was it was his number. Yeah, I always say that if I come back to you with a different number, it's going to be your number, not my number. Right. You know? Exactly. And, and we I don't, I don't believe in it, but you you want a different number? Here's the different number. I'll give you. I don't, one. I don't think I can get there, but oh. you know, the number I gave you is the number I thought we could get to. Yeah. Oh yeah, that dance every year was always. Uh, oh, it was hard. I hated that. And, and got, like my sales guy, my head sales guy, I tell him, look it. If there's going to be any sandbagging to be done, I will do it with the board. Okay, yes. so you give me what you really think you can do. I don't don't give me the stretch business. If you got a good person uh, who's committed to the organization, he'll stretch all. You don't have to tell him to do that. Right. I always tell him just give me your number, and then of course I'll sandbag it with the board because that's you know you have to have some slush there. But I always give people permission to tell me the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I always say that. Don't don't spin it when it comes to me. If I need to spin it, I'll do it. I'll do it on my level. So. That's right. That's that's yeah. your prerogative. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. right. Now, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Because if if I get spun to and then I spin it, it's it's all it's out of whack, right? And <laughs> and it's not good. So give me yeah, the give me the skinny, and if we have to adjust it, we'll we'll adjust it. Now, <laughs> give me the skinny. That's an old navy term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I know what that's like. <laughs> well, this is this has been fantastic, Steve. Um, what, are there any final messages you want to leave for the leaders who are listening in and they're you know trying to figure out how to you know what's important and what should I, what should they be working on today? What should be thinking about in the future? What what message would you leave with all our leaders today? I got you know I usually end these with like a, a generic message, but I've got one really important. Okay. 
you know, one of the things you uh, noted in, in, in the show write-up is that silent business killers. Yeah. Well, I've added one. I used to have seven of them. I added one just recently uh, to a number eight. It's called, you have a, a sleeping silent business killer in your business right now, and that's called healthcare expenses. Mm. Now, healthcare expenses are going up on average 10% a year, right? Yeah. Most CEOs don't, and I know I did until a number of years ago, most CEOs don't pay much attention to that because it's okay. Oh, Blue Cross is racing our race by 10%. What are you going to do? It's just like life. We've got to have it. No, that's not really true. You can control your healthcare expenses if you do it right, and you really should. So I advise CEOs pay as, you know, a good CEO pays really sharp attention to manufacturing costs, marketing expenses. What are you going to this trade show for? Why do you have to put that ad in the trade pub? But they don't pay any attention at all to their healthcare expenses because there's a lot, a lot of detail that you can get if you if you know how to ask and you know where to ask. And yeah. if you look at healthcare expenses 10% every year from now on until like forever, it's going to bury your business if you don't get control of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of things you can do yep. and you to, to positively impact that. So that's I've reduced mine by 30 percent in the last four years, and I haven't I haven't eliminated any uh, health care benefit for any employee. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of options available, especially for like myself, uh, a startup business. And there's a lot of ways you can. Uh, well, we're not a startup anymore, but a small manufacturing business, a lot of things we can do to uh, save money. And uh, and so, yeah, we've been looking for everything we can do to save money because that and again, it's not to take away from the benefits for the employees, but it's just a cost that's a that's, you know, you're it's it's a very large expense now in a business. So we have to make sure that we're, we're controlling it, make sure that doesn't get out of control. So that's great. Bad. Great advice, great practical advice for you here on the show today. So, uh, Steve, this has been fantastic. Uh, how can our listeners find out more about you, your company, and your books? Well, they could go to either MillerIngenuity.com, and I think you'll probably have that in the show notes because it's kind of mm -hmm. hard to spell. And that links to me, uh, my personal website, my books, and uh, and everything, my social media. That That's probably the, the most efficient way to get to me. Okay, very good. And we'll we'll put that in the show notes. And just leaders, I, I want you to really listen in to what Steve has got to say today. I mean, this idea of not being complacent, to, to, to know your numbers, know the details, and lead from the front. If you want to push uh, innovation, for example, in your company, you better be leading it from the front. If you want to push safety in your company, you better be leading it from the front. It don't just just don't just be full of your words. Uh, make sure that your actions match your words. So this has been fantastic advice. Steve, thank you for being on the show and sharing all of your experience, your wisdom, and, and all of uh, all of the insight that you gave us today. Well, it was my pleasure, John. It's always a pleasure to talk to a fellow squid. <laughs> That's even better, the fact that you were in the Navy too. So I love it. So again, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care.
Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid.